This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning, good morning. Hope you've had a great uh, Thanksgiving break, and uh, it's great to be together this morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met... Uh, let me just extend a welcome to you and say it's, it's wonderful to have you here today. We're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to continue to do that. We'll take uh, the Sunday before, you know, right before Christmas, uh, take a break from that. But we're going to just work our way through rather than, sometimes we do an Advent series, but this year we're just going to uh, work our way through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew 5. Today we'll be in verses 27 through 30. If, uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, there's one under the seat in front of you. You could grab that. I'd recommend that. Turn to page 473, and uh, you can uh, track along with us as we look at this text this morning. We're in a section where Jesus is taking various uh, teachings of the Old Testament and, and demonstrating uh, how he applies those, which is different than the religious leaders of his day. So we're in a section where he's not contrasting himself with the Old Testament. He's contrasting himself and his teaching with the Pharisees and the scribes' way of applying Scripture. And last week we looked at that with murder and saw that he said it's not just that you should avoid murder, but that you should uh, avoid anger, which is the heart of murder, that there's judgment not only for murder, but judgment for anger, judgment from insulting, for insulting speech, uh, judgment for unreconciled relationships, this sort of a thing. So uh, anyway, that was kind of a prep for the holiday, so hopefully you're able to put some of that into practice this last week. And uh, today we are in verses 27 through 30 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's word. So in this passage, he's doing something very similar to what we saw last week when we studied murder. He's teaching uh, different than the Pharisees. He's not disavowing the command that forbids adultery, the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments. Rather, what he's doing is he is critiquing the sort of skin-deep righteousness of the Pharisees. And he's showing that true obedience goes down to the desire level, to the motive level, and not just the behavior level. So last week, we used the illustration of an iceberg and said an iceberg is like the, the above the waterline, the iceberg that we can see is like external behavior. And below the waterline, there's more ice than you can see. There's more ice hidden by water than there is visible in most icebergs. And in that situation, Jesus is going below the waterline 
to the motive level, and that's what he's doing here. The religious leaders of Jesus' day may have felt that they were obedient to God because they didn't commit adultery. Adultery is having sex with someone else's spouse, or if you're married, having sex with an unmarried person, but it's having sex with someone else's spouse. And probably he highlights adultery here because it would have been more common than fornication, uh, which is having sex with someone you're not married to, but they may not be married. You may not be married in that case. Would have been more common in his day. People got married at a young age, so if you were to have sex with someone that you weren't married to, it was likely another married person as opposed to a single person. So this was adultery would have been more common than fornication in a culture where people marry young, in a culture where people marry older like ours, perhaps fornication is more common, but both are in view here. Jesus spotlights the desires underneath the act of adultery, and he expands the commandment so that it, so that it addresses everyone. R.T. France in his commentary, he's a New Testament scholar, in his commentary on Matthew translated verse 28 this way, but I tell you that every man who looks at someone else's wife and wants to have sex with her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So he's talking about want, desire here. The ESV translates it, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent. Now the word lust is simply a word that means desire. But in this case, it is a desire for something that God forbids, a desire uh, for intimacy with someone that you are not married to, that they're married to someone else. The desire itself may be a natural desire. When this word is used in the Bible, it could be a natural desire, a good desire, with a wrong intent or a wrong direction. So, for instance, the desire for food, which is probably fresh on everyone's mind the past few days, the desire for food is a God-given desire. But the desire to overeat and to, you know, uh, to, to escape one's uh, internal angst by overeating for comfort or something like that, uh, that is gluttony. And in the same way here, sexual desire and sexual attraction is, is a God-given gift. It is from him. But sexual desire for someone you are not married to, that is a sinful desire. So Jesus is making a profound point here. What he's telling his first hearers is that the desire for sexual sin is sexual sin. The desire for sexual sin is sexual sin. Now, not a fleeting thought, not just like a thought that comes into one's mind, but the sort of entertainment of that thought. We can't control every thought that is approached that, that approaches our minds that is temptation and temptation is not sin Jesus had tempting thoughts Matthew 4 the devil tempts Jesus on three times but he did not sin because a thought entered his mind he didn't entertain the thought I love what Martin Luther said about temptation and sin and this really applies to lust he says we can't stop birds from flying over our heads but we can keep them from building nests in our hair. This is true. You can't, a bird that flies by, you can't do anything about, but you can get them out of your hair. 
to those who thought they were obeying the commandment as long as they weren't sleeping with their neighbor's wife, Jesus says desire for sexual sin is sexual sin. So he destroys the idea that there's no harm in looking and imagining and fantasizing in one's mind. Jesus is also adjusting the culture of the day, which placed different standards on men and women when it came to adultery. Men often got off the hook for adultery much easier than women. Think about the woman caught in adultery whom they're about to stone. Where's the guy in that whole scenario? And this, the reason for this is because in this culture, many believe falsely, this isn't a biblical idea, but they believe that women were the cause uh, of men committing adultery. Um, and so it was, that was a fairly common view that men, I'm sorry, that women caused men's lusts, that women triggered men's lusts, that it was their responsibility. So they wore head coverings and dressed extremely modestly, covering themselves. But Jesus' take here is different. He doesn't warn the disciples about women. He warns the disciples about themselves. He says the problem lies with the one who is looking The problem lies with the one who is desiring. The problem lies with the one who is lusting, not the person who's being lusted after. So he is is adjusting a cultural view here that's so helpful, which really elevates uh, women in a way when they were uh, sort of looked down upon in this area in an unjust uh, sort of double standard sort of way. The problem, Jesus says, relies with the luster, not the lusty, if we could say it that way. So this had to land on the Pharisees, really like radical, progressive teaching from Jesus. Jesus is promoting a different idea. He's promoting uh, radical prevention measures as well. Look what he says. He says in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So he's identifying ways in which temptation may come, what you see, and then what you do in light of what you see. He's saying if this happens, get rid of your eye, get rid of your hand. Because why? There are eternal implications to our lust. There's eternal judgment on the line is what Jesus says to people who think they're not sinning, perhaps, because they're not physically committing adultery. Now, he's not requiring literal mutilation. He's not saying this is something you're supposed to actually do. He's using hyperbole. This is, you know, an exaggeration to make a point. And the point is to be radical with regard to heart lust, heart adultery. His point is that this this kind of thinking, this kind of fantasizing leads to judgment just like physical adultery. And so he is calling his hearers to act decisively, to treat this as deadly, to view lust, the mental lust, imagination, to view it as a cancer that brings death, not just the act itself. Okay, so here's the obvious thing. We live in a culture that is aflame with lust. Studies, I've done a lot of looking at studies, and, and the, the, this is generally what I find. This would be the closest numbers that I can find repeated more, most often. That seven out of ten men have viewed pornography in the U.S. in the last week. 
uh, seven out of ten men. And the numbers are not much different in the church. They're not much different among Christians. Slightly better, but not a lot better. So seven in ten have viewed porn in the last week. One in five women have viewed pornography in the last week. Um, 90% of kids by 16 have seen pornography. 90% of 16-year-olds. With the average age of first exposure is 11 years old. That's the average, which means there's some younger than 11, and some don't see porn until later. Here's the reality, that most Young teens have seen more explicit sexual material than my parents' generation would have seen in a lifetime. They've certainly seen more variety. They've certainly seen things that were not even imaginable uh, to be displayed um, and and accessible video or pictures for uh, my parents' generation. The iPhone came out 11 years ago. So people that are now in their early 20s are the first generation in the history of the world to have had 24-7 unlimited access to every imaginable pornographic image in their pocket at all times from puberty until now their 20s. Someone has said Generation Z, that generation, that for Generation Z, porn is the wallpaper of their lives. They've never known a time when it wasn't immediately accessible to them. So this is an obviously an issue uh, in our culture. Now, lust is a matter of the heart and a matter of the mind. It's not a matter of uh, externally what we can be exposed to. Um, but it's obviously a very live issue in our culture. It's a very live issue in the church. It's a very live issue in this room uh, this Thanksgiving weekend. Ultimately, lust isn't a young person problem, though, just because this generation has always had access to it, the young generation, Uh, nor is it a man's problem. This is something really important that needs to be stressed. The culture stresses this. The church doesn't stress this as much, that porn is a rising issue for women as well. So one of the largest porn sites in the country reports that one in four visitors to its site are women. One in four. And they note that women spend longer on the site by average. Average viewing time on the site is longer for women than men. It's even more difficult to talk about this because it's presented as a men's issue. So it's very difficult for a lady who's in that uh, one in five group, and maybe it's a bit less in the church, uh, but it's very difficult for a lady to talk about this or acknowledge this because there's an additional shame attached with it because it's portrayed often in the church as a dirty guy thing. And so I don't want to be like that. To even acknowledge it can be difficult. And for some women, the the issue of lust that Jesus talks about here, he says a man lusting after a woman, it goes both ways. It it, it applies to a man lusting after a man. It applies to a woman lusting after a woman. It applies to a married person lusting after a single or a single lusting after another single, or you get the point. It applies to anyone who is desiring and thinking about uh, some sexual expression outside of a married relationship. So for some ladies, it might not be explicit pornography that creates a lust or a, an un, um, a, um, 
a disordered desire, that is a desire for someone that they're not married to, that she's not married to. It might be more of a relational or even a romantic fantasy about someone you aren't married to. So, for instance, the Tenth Commandment addresses this. The Tenth Commandment, which forbids coveting, says that you are not to covet your neighbor's spouse. So this would be a lust, a disordered lust as well. The looking at someone else's spouse and desiring him, looking at how he treats her, wondering what it would, it's a fine line between wondering what would it be like to be married to someone like that, to what would it be like to be married to him, to thinking about him. So it might not be pornographic lust, it might be relational um, lust as well that enters into the picture here. So, for me, the easy thing to do is to preach an ironic sermon today. That is, to preach a Pharisee sermon to a room full of Pharisees where we just simply address the external issues of lust and pornography. What I could do is stay above the waterline and give you some tips for sin management. I could talk about filters. I could talk about accountability partners. And we could just sort of deal with the above the uh, waterline issues of, uh, you know, keeping clean in these, when it comes to our lust. I could toss in some very stern warnings about how bad your life can spin out of control if you don't deal with your lust, and that is absolutely true. Your life can spin completely out of control. My life can spin out of control uh, by uh, enslavement to pornography and various sexual sins. So all of that could be helpful, but I think it's better to back up a little bit and just consider what the Sermon on the Mount is about. We're calling the series The Good Life because Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount talking about the blessed life in the kingdom. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount addressing things like blessed are the poor in spirit. The good life, the flourishing life, the blessed life is the person who is poor in spirit, that is, sees their need for God. So he runs through here looking at what the good life, the good life is the person who mourns over his or her sin. The good life is the person who is meek. Blessed is the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Flourishing are those who are merciful. Fruitful are those who are pure in heart. We could use all these various words in the Beatitudes. Jesus is launching his first teaching on the kingdom, and he's saying this is the way life is meant to be. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of the culture. Jesus is speaking a kingdom of good news. That's why in verse 23 of chapter 4, it says he went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel. That's good news. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And so while there is a place for managing temptations externally, for sure there is a place for that. That is not the key to freedom from lust. It's not a behavior focus, but I believe it starts with getting a picture of God's design for our lives, that Christ's reign is good news. He goes around teaching about good news is what he says. And he's describing this good life the blessed life. And so there's something in what he teaches here about avoiding adultery and about avoiding the desire for adultery that is good news. 
It is good news. Life in the kingdom tells a better story about sex than the empty promises of lust. This is the key. We've got to trade the empty promises for lust for robust Good life promises that God gives for us. If you don't trade the empty promises for real promises, you will find yourself constantly going back and buying the lie time after time after time. We must be reminded that the story of Scripture is a good story with regard to our sexuality in particular. That it is a good story. We must learn it. We must believe it. Believing the better story is more powerful than managing sin. This is true in every area of dealing with sin. Believing the better story is always more fruitful than just managing sin. I'm going to read you a story. I'm going to tap into some Greek mythology this morning. And a story that so well illustrates this point about believing a better story is better than managing sin. Brian Hedges writes the following. He writes, Greek mythology tells the fascinating story of Ulysses and his perilous journey home from the Trojan War. Among the dangers Ulysses and his crew faced were the alluring sirens. The sirens were beautiful, dangerous bird women who lured sailors to shipwreck and death through their beguiling beauty, enticing voices, and enchanting songs. Desiring to hear them sing, yet leery of their seductive power, Ulysses filled the ears of his fellow sailors with wax and had himself lashed to the mast of the ship so that, they, so that he could hear the sirens' voices without succumbing to the mesmerizing music. Had it not been for the ropes, Ulysses would have perished. But another story is told about the sirens, this one involving Jason, the leader of the Argonauts. Like Ulysses, he too faced the alluring beauty and enticing music of the sirens, but his strategy didn't involve wax in the ears or roping himself to the mast. Instead, Jason brought Orpheus, a musician so talented that he could tame beasts and move mountains. The more alluring music of Orpheus broke the spell of the sirens so that Jason and the Argonauts were unmoved by their enchantments. Some people try to fix sin by metaphorically filling their ears with wax or strapping themselves to the mast with ropes of external rules and regulations, but their hearts are still captivated by the siren song of sinful pleasure. The gospel commends a better way, the expulsive power of a new affection. By setting our hearts on Christ, we can be captivated by a sweeter, more satisfying song. The scripture gives us a better story. It gives us a better song. And it is by a new affection in Christ and his gospel that ultimately gives us the power to fight all sin. So I want to talk about that a little bit this morning. I want to talk briefly about some of the lies of lust and pornography in particular and some of the truths of the promises of God that we can hold on to. There are a number of lies that lust and particularly the porn use 
tells us, I'm only going to hit about three that I think are common. One common one that we believe is that no one will know and no one will be harmed. See, that, that, that's some of the idea behind here. Having sex with someone else's spouse does obvious harm to one's own marriage, to that person's marriage. So, so clearly there's harm there, but is there any harm in thinking, in imagining, in imagining or in viewing? As long as I don't have sex with someone else's spouse, I'm not really hurting anybody here. But Jesus says that entertaining the desire will actually bring judgment. The lie is that no one will know, but yet God sees and God knows and God uh, often reveals it so that others know as well. We think that because lust is in the realm of the imagination, no one is harmed. And yet innumerable marriages have been damaged and destroyed, some destroyed from pornography use. And anyone who counsels couples will tell you this, that it is uh, one of the, the most frequent damaging aspects to a marriage today. And the reason is because intimacy and sexual intimacy in particular, blossoms in an environment of trust, in an environment of fidelity, in an environment of security, when each spouse builds the security of the other spouse, where each spouse is committed to tightening and strengthening the bonds of intimacy together. And when one spouse knows the other is engaging in porn use, it hinders and breaks that trust. So porn hinders a person from from creating and building trust in the marriage, and therefore it hinders them for, for experiencing God's better story. Another aspect is we believe no one is hurt, but but porn, when someone is engulfed in porn, a married person in protect, particular, uh, what often happens is that they find themselves uh, engulfed in an imaginary world and then uh, let down and dissatisfied by, quote, the real sex of their marriage relationship. One of the reasons is because they come to the bedroom trained and discipled in sexual selfishness which is the message of pornography, where you're not uh, interacting with a real person, but an imaginary world. So it doesn't produce the better story of marital love, which is always tied to faithfulness, preferring the other, selflessness and not selfishness. This is passion the way God designed it, to be experienced. Blazing hot passion is tied to selflessness, not selfishness. So the lie of lust is always bent in on oneself. It is always about self-satisfaction and preferring oneself as opposed to giving oneself for one's husband or wife. If you're single, maybe you say, well, I'm not married. That doesn't apply to me. You're training yourself for your sexual relationship in marriage right now. You are in training right now. And if you are enslaved to pornography, you are sabotaging your future pleasure, your future intimacy, your future giving of yourself to your spouse. So the lie of lust is that this doesn't affect anyone or anything. It doesn't affect me. I'm single. But, the, but it's not true. It does affect. It does affect. 
Another lie is, I'll feel better after engaging in porn. There's something going on in my soul, in my heart, in my emotions. There's something going on that doesn't feel good today. I don't feel good. And if I engage in porn and masturbation, I will feel better. That's the lie. When we land on a porn site, initially it is perhaps by accident or maybe out of curiosity. But when returning and binging and becoming a regular porn user, we usually do so out of escape uh, or for some type of relief. You're bored. You're bored and you want some type of titillating excitement. Or we are depressed or lonely and we want an imagined connection of some sort. Or we are anxious or pressured or discouraged and we just want to escape. It's a means of escaping into another realm, uh, experiencing feelings and escaping from whatever the pressure is, the worry, the anxiety that weighs me down right now. We feel sexual desire or frustration and want relief, so we go to porn. But porn never delivers as promised. If you've ever talked to someone that's enslaved with a porn habit, you'll never hear them say, I feel so alive. Porn builds me up in such a way that after viewing, uh, that I just feel like now this is what life is, I've, you know, achieved what my life is for. No one speaks that way. Afterwards, you feel guilty, shameful, empty, dirty, remorseful. Lust never produces fullness. It always yields emptiness. Every time, lust produces emptiness. It doesn't answer the problems of our heart, the longing of our souls. Frederick Buechner says, lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. There's a thirst in our soul, but like a thirsty person craving salt, that's what lust is. It never satisfies. It cannot deliver the flourishing that Jesus speaks of here. The blessed life, the meaningful life, the full life, the life that God created us for as image bearers, it never produces that. It says escape is available. It says go into your, your mind and your imaginary world and imagine this situation and you'll feel better or look at this and you'll feel better, but it always lies. To the single person, the lie is I need sexual gratification for my well-being. So I need this. But the reality is you can't take a God-given desire and misuse it through lust and experience well-being. You can't. God didn't create us that way. It's never the case that we misuse God's gifts and flourish. Sometimes the married person, the married man in particular, may say, I'll never be sexually satisfied in my marriage, so I have to pursue porn. That's where I find satisfaction. My, you, you know, I'm dissatisfied in my marriage. My wife doesn't respond sexually the way I desire or the way I expect or the way I saw. Or you may be angry with your wife. You may feel disrespected by your wife. Sometimes guys use porn as a way of getting back 
But whatever you are believing, it is a destructive lie. It's a destructive lie. We, we can give in to believing these kinds of things. The reality is that because of Christ, because of the gospel, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of community, God can change your marriage radically. God can change your marriage and grant you, by his grace, the intimacy that he created you for, not a false intimacy. And he can create, for sure, he can restore an intimacy with him, which is ultimately satisfying. A final lie that I'll mention before I get to some of the good news is the lie that this is the last time. This is the last time. Once we start, we believe we can quit anytime we want. But pornography has an enslaving, addictive effect. I don't have time to go into this. I've done a fair bit of reading on the science behind how this works, the science of the damaging effects on the brain from regular porn use. It is a fascinating study, not produced by Christians uh, with some kind of you know, repressive sexual ethic that Jesus brings to you know, squelch everybody's fun. It's not that. By, by scientists who may or may not um, believe in God, but who have demonstrated that what happens with regular porn use is that it essentially rewires the pleasure centers of the brain and it becomes addictive. And to receive the same rush, the same stimulation, the user must push the limits of variety. That's really what it is about, about further variety. And the user finds himself searching for more degrading and dehumanizing acts to achieve the same type of stimulation. And it re- the brain was never created for this, uh, to take this kind of imagery in this dosage. I mean, anything, any other kind of abuse, you run out. Like, you can't just eat yourself. If you eat, at some point, you're done. If, if you take pills or drink alcohol, at some point, you will pass out. But you can go endlessly, hour after hour, scr- uh, scrolling an image after image after image for hours endlessly, and the brain is not, uh, is not created for that kind of uh, exposure and so what ultimately happens is a person, a man in particular, becomes unable at points to even uh, participate sexually without that kind of imagery. A real person won't do it. So it's not the last time, and without radical intervention, the results can be catastrophic. This is not the last time unless God intervenes. The goodness of God, the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells a story that sex is a gift. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we'll see that in the creation narrative in Genesis 2, it says God created, uh, he creates Adam, then he creates Eve. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so God says that he takes a man and a woman, joins them in a marriage, puts them in a one-flesh relationship, which has a physical dimension, but it's more than that. It's a joined life. It's a joined emotions, joined affections, uh, joined purpose and calling, and joined bodies for sexual intimacy. He shall hold fast to her. 
It, it, God created sex to express this life uniting you, this life uniting union, and that's the problem with adultery. Jesus says, "Don't commit adultery." The Bible says, "Don't commit adultery," because you are experience a life uniting act without a life uniting uh, uniting union of commitment for life. And so, sex expresses this. Um, it, it expresses its use. Obviously, sex is, is a means of procreation as well. But in the Bible, that's not the pr- that's not the primary means we see of sexual relationship. It is this unifying of companionship. Uh, it is an experiencing of physical pleasure as the couple celebrates their love for one another. And in fact, there's an entire book of the Bible about that, which I taught through uh, here with middle schoolers and up in the building. Those were interesting sermons. I taught through Song of Solomon. Um, I had parents so nervous, man. I was, it was, they were just dying. Uh, anyway, so we did that. Um, and it says also that when they were created, they were naked and unashamed. This is the ultimate, this is prior to sin, but this is the ultimate longing of the heart. To be naked emotionally as a person who I really am before someone else and to be loved and accepted by them. Naked, they were naked physically as well, but they were naked and unashamed. This is how God created it to be before the fall. This is how God created a gift of intimacy, a gift of openness, a gift of union, a gift of two lives joined together expressed through sexual union. And it was glorious, and it was beautiful, and it was perfect. That's God's good design. It's not to lessen pleasure. That, that's the ultimate pleasure. The ultimate sexual pleasure was experienced prior to the fall. When they weren't, neither were sinful, but they were in deeply devoted to the other in self-giving love and affection and union. So sex is a gift, and we must worship the giver and not the gift. Sex is a great gift, but it is a terrible God. For sex will not deliver what it promises. We all long, every one of us longs for satisfaction in life. We long for fulfillment in life. We long for well-being. We long for healthy relationships. And sex, romance, relationships can easily become an idol that can't bear the weight we put on them. We look to a relationship to find our all in all. We look to sex to provide our all in all. We look to romance to be the sort of ravishing emotion that will give my life meaning. But only God does that. Those are gifts that he gives. We must worship him and not the gifts. But we, in a search for God, frequently look to the gifts. And in lust, we look for a disordered, inappropriate use of the gifts. About a century ago, G.K. Chesterton wrote that the man who knocks on the brothel door is looking for God. Someone said if he were writing today, he would say, everyone who surfs the internet looking for porn is surfing for God. Because we are looking to escape and to feel and to sense and to experience something that is only found in God. We don't have to pursue the counterfeit when we have the genuine. We don't have to be satisfied with fleeting pleasures when the greatest treasure of all is available to us, Jesus Christ. He is worthy of our all. Jesus says stuff like this about himself. So we have to believe this or not. 
Jesus says, the person who finds me and finds the kingdom is like a person who finds a treasure in a field, and it's so valuable he goes and sells everything he has so that he can buy that field and get that treasure. Jesus doesn't say, I've got a set of rules for you. I've got a philosophy of life. Jesus says, if you know me, if you could see who I am, you would treasure me so much that you give everything you have just to experience me. Jesus says, if anybody has a thirst, let him come to me. I'll give you rivers of living water which will flow out of you. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I am the food that your soul longs for. That's what he says. That's the way he speaks about himself. When the Bible talks about escape, the Bible says we're to escape to God. One of the most uh, prolific images in the book of Psalms, which is a book of worship, is God is my refuge. That means God is the safe place I can go. God is the place I go can go when I need protection. God is the place I can go when life is crazy, when the hole in my heart aches, when I'm in loneliness. God is the one who provides life. He is the source for me. This is the language of the Bible. The Bible does not express itself as just one alternative of rules for life. The Bible says you were created in the image of God to know and experience him. And Jesus has come and given his life to die in our place, to rise, to defeat sin and death, to pour out his spirit, to give us new life. And this better story is found in the Beatitudes. It's not found in self-indulgence. It's found in finding my need for God, being poor in spirit, being pure in heart, being peacemaker being a peacemaker with others. These are the kinds of things. We don't find our life by self-indulgence. Jesus says you find your life by giving it away. Lust is always self-indulgence. Biblical love and biblical sexuality are always selfless indulgence, if we could say it that way. That's the better story. The better story is that we can be free from lust. The lie is just one more. This is the last time. The better story is we can be free from lust. Now, we'll all be tempted to lust until we die. But we can all be free from the life-dominating power of lust. I'm going to tell you that on the authority of the word that you can, we're dead to sin, the Bible says. It is possible to be free from the life-dominating uh, power of of lust. It is possible to interact with people without mentally dehumanizing them in our imaginations as bodies to be consumed sexually. It's possible to relate with people as people created in the image of God. It's possible. It's possible to be single and find meaning and purpose in giving your life away rather than serving lust. It's possible. By the power of the gospel. It's possible to get online and not search for porn. It's possible. It is possible to find satisfaction in God. It is possible to have a passionate, fulfilling sexual relationship with your spouse that makes porn look like the empty, hollow shell of an experience that it really is. That's possible. It is possible to cultivate an emotional intimacy, romance, friendship, companionship with your spouse that finds you growing and maturing in your love over the years. Problems, yes. Setbacks, yes. Few steps forward, few steps back, yes. But over the trajectory of your married life, it is possible to grow in the direction of maturity, in the direction of closeness, in the direction of deeper, more meaningful love over the years that a fleeting hookup can never come compared to 
possible. And it begins with believing the better story of creation. What did God create you for? What did he create your sexuality for? And it, and it moves to believing the better story of redemption, that Jesus died to set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And if it's not possible, then let's close our Bibles and go home and find something else to do. Because if the power of God is not possible to change my life, maybe it's a slow change, but I just want to hold out hope for you that there is hope for you and there is hope for me in whatever areas we struggle in. Everybody here is a struggler. Everybody here is battling something today. But God wants to free us over time into an increasing experience of freedom in him. He created us for something better. And if Jesus came, and we're talking about lust today. We, could be, we talked about anger last week. We talked about anything. If Jesus came to give his life for our lust, to pay for our lust on the cross, to rise from the dead, crushing the power of lust, and now he lives in us, joined to us, he dwells in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, then let's separate ourselves from everything that seeks to pull us back down into the grave. And I want to argue that the place we start with is what we believe. That's a place we start with. It is great to have internet accountability, an accountability partner, something on your computer. It is great to get rid of a smartphone and get a flip phone if that's what you need. Whatever it takes, it is great to do that. But it starts with believing the good news. Blessed are those who see their need for God. That's verse 3. Blessed are those who see their need for God, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God wants you to see someone greater than what you see in your lust. God wants you to hear something more glorious than the death song. Of lust. If it's a regular problem for you, there is help. We have seen people freed from life enslaving lusts in our church. We, we, I could give you names. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. And here's their picture. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Here they are. Oh, you didn't know this, but we just wanted to tell your story today. Um, but we can introduce you to the men and women. Men and women. If this is a regular challenge for you, I want to offer you help uh, by offering um, your participation in what we call freedom groups. We have freedom groups for men and women, and our freedom groups demonstrate that we are not alone in the struggle. They're separate for men and for women. If you're a man and you struggle with, you feel like lust is a struggle in your life, you feel like pornography is a struggle in your life, I just urge you to, to join this group and get help. They, they study together. They pray for one another. They rehearse the better story to one another, the good news of the gospel. So Caleb's one of our pastors. He's homesick today. Rob is homesick today. Would you pray for the pastors? Bob and I are holding down the fort. I mean, these guys, I invite them over for Thanksgiving, serve them a romaine lettuce salad, and they can't even come to church a few days later. Weak constitutions, those two. Um, so you can, it, Caleb, that's his name. He's one of our pastors. Uh, you can email him as a guy. It'll go directly to him. It'll be private, and then he'll get back with you and explain to you 
how the freedom groups uh, meet. They meet early on a Saturday morning, and he'll get you involved in that. If you're a woman, we have a biblical counselor in our church named Laurieann Bailey, and she has led groups for women. You can, uh, you can email her at Grace Church as well. And this is for two groups of people. If you were a woman battling lust or a sexual sin of some sort, she's done groups for ladies who are in the midst of the struggle with lust. She's also done groups for ladies who are struggling because their husbands are enslaved to pornography, and they don't have anyone to talk to about that. Um, And so they've helped women whose husbands are battling and also women who battle themselves to different groups of ladies. But if you're either one of those groups, you can email her as a lady, and uh, she will tell you uh, how you can meet and and get help. There's no shame in any of our sin. We need, to, we need to remove the shame of this and bring it into the light and say, the, the, I am loved by Christ. I am his son and his daughter, the father, son, and daughter. He welcomes me to cleanse me, to grant me freedom and a new life. So we, wanna, we, we want to believe the gospel, uh, the gospel works in, in the greatest areas that we can be entrapped in. We want to deal, take radical measures. Why? Because sin kills. And it keeps us away from the better story, the better song, the beauty of the gospel, the glory of the kingdom that Jesus talks about. So open up, receive help. It's other folks. Uh, Everyone in the room battles lust, okay? But other folks have found it to be an, maybe it's an enslaving thing for you. Let's get you some help. Receive cleansing for your conscience. Receive power for change. And uh, do it now before the new year. I mean, you can get some help now and hit the new year with a real fresh start in your soul and in your heart by God's grace. This is the power of the gospel. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.